Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, October 28, 2018, on the basis of Mark 13, verses 5 through 11. So big news this week, there's going to be another Titanic. Not another movie. Some of you are probably pretty thankful about that. But another, another boat. As early as 2022, you might be able to hop on a ride of that boat that famously hit an iceberg and crashed to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Titanic II, as they are calling it, is being built to the exact specifications of the original. Same dimensions, same layout, same furnishings, same menu. It's even going to take the very same route from Southampton, England, all the way across the Atlantic over to New York City. The idea is to give passengers an authentic experience that very closely mimics the original. Of course, as you can imagine, this has sparked a flurry of jokes. One person said, I hope this time the doors are a little bigger so that both Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio can stay afloat. Another person said, don't worry, global warming has melted all the icebergs, so this time it's safe. And then finally, another person thought that if the boat goes down again, this time the ensuing scene in the water is going to look a little bit like this. Aside from all of those attempts at humor, there is one serious question that many people are asking, and that question is this. When Titanic 2 is ready to go, would you hop on? Kind of seems silly when you think about it. I mean, it's almost a virtual certainty that this time around, things are going to go a little bit better, that every passenger is going to make it safely to its destination. In fact, the one difference between Titanic 2 and the original is that the new one will be outfitted with modern-day navigational equipment. And yet, just even the thought of riding on a boat, having an experience that is designed to imitate one of the most famous tragedies of all time, is more than enough to make people a little bit nervous. After all, no one wants to hop on board a sinking ship. I can't help but think that maybe that's a little bit how Jesus' disciples felt as they heard the words that Jesus said that we just heard from Mark chapter 13. We're wrapping up this series today entitled Frequently Asked Questions, looking at the unique answers that Christianity gives to universal human questions. And the question that the disciples asked that prompted Jesus to say these words was about their future. What does the future hold? They were especially interested in knowing what exactly would happen, what their future would hold if they continued to sort of stay on board, you might say, with Jesus. If they continued to follow him, what would the future hold? And I'm guessing they aren't the only ones who want to know the answer to that question. What does our future hold? If I stay on the path that I'm on, where will that path go? Or what would happen if I switch paths? Specifically, what's going to happen? What's in store for me if I continue to be a Christian, if I continue to be a member of a church if I continue to stay aboard Jesus' boat and follow him? Well, in these verses, Jesus has the answer. In fact, you might say it's sort of like a movie trailer. It's a very condensed and action-packed preview of what is in store for us. And really, it's quite clear. There's no disputing the facts of what Jesus says. Really, the only thing that is up for discussion is what to make of those facts. And thankfully, Jesus provides us with both. Not only the facts, but what to make 
of those facts. Is following Jesus sort of like hopping on a sinking ship, or is there more to it? As we look at these verses today, we're going to see Jesus teach us a very important lesson. He's going to show us that we are, we are to watch the preview of our life story through the right lens. As we look at these verses, it's interesting to me to see how much of what Jesus says is the direct opposite of what so many people are hoping for in our world. So, for example, people, people often hope for world peace. That at some point, wars will cease, there'll be no more terrorism, there'll be no more need for armies or for nuclear weapons, and Jesus says, nope. There's always going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's always going to be nation rising up against nation. So often people hope that the planet on which we live would, would someday become this wonderful place that just simply takes care of all of us, that, that Mother Earth would simply pick us up in her warm embrace and just keep us all safe and sound. And Jesus says, nope. Expect earthquakes. Expect life on this planet to continue to go through frustration and struggle as sin's curse causes Earth to continue to decay. Expect Earth itself to open up its mouth and devour the very people that it was created to feed and nourish. So often you, pe you hear people hope that there will someday be an end to poverty and hunger. That somehow we can figure out a way to make sure that everyone has everything that they need. I mean, there's certainly enough to go around, right? Jesus says, nope. Expect famines. Expect there to be times when in one part of the world they have way more than what they actually need and yet at the very same time in another part of the world they don't have enough. There is some good news. Jesus says that as all of this is going on, God will be there, God will be present, God will be at work, but in a very specific way. Jesus puts it this way. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Where will God be in all of this mess? Where is to be, he to be found? He's to be found at work in the gospel, in the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That gospel is like that angel you heard about in Revelation, flying high in midair, above the fray, untouchable from all the things that are going on in this world. That gospel will continue to go out, and Jesus is saying that is where God is to be found, that is where and that is how God is going to be working. So let me ask you, what do you think of this picture? What do you think of this preview of your life's story as there are wars and earthquakes and other natural disasters and, and famines and all of these things going on? Jesus says, God will be present, but he will be present in a rather unassuming and unimpressive way. Not in the halls of kings, not in the hangars of F-16 fighter jets, not in the boardrooms of Silicon Valley CEOs. He will be present in the gospel. That's where he will be found. He'll be there in places like this, among gatherings of people like this. He'll be there in the dim morning light as you begin your day with your Bible open. He'll be there in the blankets and the stuffed animals as you tuck in your child with prayer and Bible study at the end of the day. He'll be there in the coffee house aroma as you listen to a friend share her struggles with you, and then you have opportunity to share your hope with her. God says, this is where I will be found. This is where and how I will work. 
And I can't help but think that as the disciples heard Jesus' words, they kind of thought it sounded like a bit of a sinking ship. Who in the world would want to hop on board that? And I can't help but think that maybe a group of Augustinian monks felt exactly the same way 500 years ago this, this very year. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, you might recall how last year on Reformation we observed the 500th anniversary of the start of that important movement. An anniversary that we mark from October 31st, 1517, the day that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, 95 statements that called into question some of the teachings and the practices of the Catholic Church. That's the date that gets a lot of attention. That's the day that we remember. And yet this year we also celebrate a very important anniversary. You see, in the months that followed Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door of the castle church, he made lots and lots of enemies, as you can imagine, but he still had a few friends, his fellow Augustinian monks. And just shy of a year later, that group of Augustinian monks met in a German city called Heidelberg, still hopeful that somehow this would all work out. They knew Luther. They loved Luther. They hoped that, that somehow this would all work out and everything would go back to normal. And yet at that meeting in Heidelberg, Luther composed a series of statements that made it clear that that would not be the case. That made it clear that any resolution with the Catholic Church was probably impossible and probably caused them to think that this whole movement that Luther started was nothing more than a sinking ship. We don't remember that event or those statements quite as much as we remember the nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church. And yet, in many ways for us as Lutherans, those statements that Luther wrote in 1518, 500 years ago this year, are more clear, more important, more fundamental to our faith. I wanted to show two of them to you this morning. Statement number 20 said this, A true theologian comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. And then statement number 25 reads, He is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. You see, by nature, we assume that the way that God is going to work in our world and the way that God is going to work in our lives is going to be in visible, obvious ways. And Luther challenged both of those assumptions with these statements. He said that the way that God is at work in our world is not through visible, obvious displays of power and majesty and glory, but hidden through apparent weakness, through apparent suffering, through apparent humiliation. And he said that the way that God is at work in our lives is not in and through all of our best attempts to be good, but rather through our humble and simple faith in the good that Jesus did for us. Since that time, there's actually been a, a label that's been applied to this way of thinking, this completely new way of looking at the presence of God and the work of God in our world and in our lives. It's sometimes known as the theology of the cross. And that's a very useful label for a lot of reasons, including this. That it reminds us that as we look at Jesus' words and see how God plans to be present and at work in our world, it reminds us that this has already been tried. These principles have already been put to work in our world. Our story is just the sequel. There's already been an original. And in this case, unlike with Titanic 2, the maiden voyage was a complete and total success. These very principles were at work and were at play in the life of Jesus himself. 
that in the life of Jesus, you had a life that was characterized and defined by humility, poverty, weakness. You had all the forces of power, all the evil and wickedness in the world concentrated on him. And yet, what did God use that event to do? He used it to undo the devil's schemes. He used it to pay for all of our sins. He used it to bring death itself down to its knees and break its power over us forever. The life of Jesus himself shows us that when God says, this is where I'm at and this is how I work in your world, we can trust him. It will, in fact, work. It will, in fact, be successful. So can we trust him? When he tells us that the place to find him and the place to find his power in our world is not, is not in the halls of kings, not in the hangars of F-16 fighter jets, not in the Silicon Valley boardrooms of CEOs, but it's in the gospel. That as we struggle, as we experience frustration and heartache, that the single greatest power we have at our disposal that makes a difference, that can bring about change in our lives and in the lives of our family and our children, that can change our marriage, that can change our community, that can change our society, it's not our wealth, it's not our job title, it's not our best efforts at goodness. It's not our outrage against evil. It's not even our right to vote. It's the gospel. And when God promises, here's where I am and here's how I work, the life of Jesus himself proves that he can be trusted. And that's a brand new lens through which we can look at everything else in our lives. In fact, it helps us understand the rest of what Jesus said in these verses. Remember those words about earthquakes and famines and, and all these natural disasters going on in our world? Those awful, awful things, those hardships? Well, they create a need for this gospel message. I mean, how in the world do you expect to talk to someone about heaven when they're firmly convinced that they've already found heaven here on earth? But instead, as we struggle, as we groan under the weight of sin's curse, we also groan for the better life that God created us for. And remember that opposition and that persecution that Jesus promised his disciples that they would face? That opposition to the gospel creates opportunity for the gospel. You saw it in Jesus' words. You saw it in that lesson from Daniel chapter 3. And whether or not you are hauled in before kings and emperors or anyone else for that matter to testify for your faith, rest assured that opposition to the gospel creates opportunity for the gospel. Without that opposition, we would be left as people with all kinds of answers to questions that no one is asking. But instead, that opposition leads us to share that wonderful good news of what Jesus has done for us. In fact, Jesus uses a very vivid metaphor to help us understand how this helps us see everything completely different. He says that all of these things that he has described are the beginning of birth pains. So picture this scene. You're speeding down the road as fast as you can, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Your wife is in the passenger seat in agonizing pain. You get to the hospital and suddenly a whole team of people, doctors and nurses, come to her attention. And for the next several hours, it's pretty intense medical effort and labor. Is that a story you want to be a part of? Well, it depends, doesn't it? on whether your spouse, whether your wife has suffered some life-threatening, serious injury that's putting her life in jeopardy, or whether she is giving birth to your child. The facts haven't changed, but the way you look at those facts and what you make of those facts certainly has. 
And in the life of Jesus, we have the perfect lens to look out at our world, to see how God promises to be at work in our world, and to be fully confident and fully optimistic as we continue to march on waiting for his return. Jesus makes it clear which of those two stories is ours. He answers our human thirst for glory with a cross. He says, here's where you'll find me. Here's where I'll be. Here's where I'll be at work in our world. We've seen it work once, and rest assured, one day we're going to see how it has worked again. How God's work in our world through the gospel is the answer to that deep, deep longing that all of us have, that longing that's expressed with that Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. That creatures want nothing more than for all worship, all praise, all thanks, all glory and honor to be given to their creator. And friends, rest assured, that's what will happen. That's what is happening right now, right here, among us, through the gospel. Far from being a ship that you want to hop off of because it's going down fast. Who wouldn't want to be in and a part of that story? In fact, that's what Jesus teaches us in these verses, that when we watch the preview of our life story through the, through the right lens, that's a story that we will very much want to be in. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org. Thank you.